3: Welcome back to Soccer Supernova, a State of Minds dedicated football chat show with me, Amy Canavan. Today, I am beyond delighted to be joined by the ex-Charlton, Luton, Aston Villa, Pisa, Celtic and Chelsea defender, Paul Elliott. Paul, it's an absolute honour. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you?
1: Oh, hi, Amy. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm always honoured and delighted to be invited to talk football. But more importantly, with a, with a club of the, the magnitude and stature uh, and affection for Celtic. So I'm good. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. And was really keen, obviously, to engage with yourself when the kind invitation come to, to appear on your, uh, your radio programme.
3: I am beyond um, honoured. Thank you so much. So you, you touched upon it there. Obviously, we all know you, you are a former Celtic player. But let's go right back to the start. You, you, grow, you grew up in Lucia. Um how, how did you find that sort of environment growing up as, as a young star?
1: um challenging um Lewisham I mean it, I mean now you just wouldn't recognize the place it's just so sort of gentrified but back in the day it was uh, it was great I loved it because there was a a freedom about you know about communities like Lewisham and you had a lot of uh, my family have sort of come from uh, the West Indies um they come from the Windrush generation and there was a lot many of them that really sort of settled in that part of South East London so you had Lewisham New Cross, Brixton, you know all those sort of uh, uh, suburbs. So growing up there, you know there was a sense of freedom. We didn't have a lot, you know, first generation immigrants. It was obviously uh, we had the struggles, but we had lots of love and, and 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 we had lots of support as well. And and I think that um, I went to school locally as well in Woolwich, an area called Woolwich in in, in southeast London. Um, and it 's amazing, especially when you think about Lewisham over the next sort of thirty forty years, if you look at the amount of the, the top English defenders or players that has come through Lewisham, you know you've you know it's been amazing you I mean you've had david Wellcastle, you 've had Ian Wright and you 've had Joe Gomez who's a current uh, england player Tabby, uh, tammy abrahams so there's been a real abundance of sort of talent that's come from the southeast of England you know to 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 come through and forge their careers uh, in football so Listen, I love my growing up. I'm proud to be a Lewisham boy, as they say, a South London man. And uh, I've got such great memories of, of growing up, playing football, you know, having fun. Because that's all you could do at the end of the day. You know, I was that sort of era, you know, two jerseys and, and, and you kick everything that moved. And, um, you know, the, the, the communities were different then and it was so much safer then as well. So you could have your breakfast in the morning and then just go out and I'd sort of come home for, you know, for a sandwich you know, where we lived in a, in a, in a, in a high-rise block in, in Lewisham. And then, you know, go back out and play football for the rest of the day, all imitating, pretending to be, you know, different players. So, you know, it, it was tough, it was challenging, but it was an immense fun, creating sort of a lot of values. It gets you streetwise as well. You get an education through being on the street. And, um, you know, I have to say, you know, compared to, sort of my life that my children sort of leave, completely different life, of course. But as I always say, you know, I, I wouldn't change my growing up uh, for the world. Didn't have a lot, you know, but, you know, we had football, we had love. My, my parents were hardworking, come from a single-parent family, um, hardworking people and just taught us good values about respect and decency. And I, I was just so privileged to, to get my career through sort of South East London and get the opportunities because I saw so many great players over the years who were extremely talented, but couldn't cope, couldn't cope with a lot of the social issues and, and obviously fall, fell by the wayside, lost themselves. So, um, a, a lot of regret for that, but obviously I, I, I was very focused. I had some very strong, you know, strong women, strong women in my mother and my grandmother, first generation, you know, immigrants. My, my, my grandmother was a small stocky little woman, you know, and, uh, you know, she she was tough. She was uncompromising, but she gave us lots of love. And um, it's those real values, you know, that really I've uh, taken with me in, in my life.
3: You, you touched upon it there, and it is all about opportunities. Um, yeah. That is that is the the fundamentals of, of any real success. So, what were the opportunities like for you? What were the grassroots football? What what were those steps?
1: Yeah, I mean it, it was it was it was it was challenging. I was very lucky I paid for some local Sunday teams and my brother Jeff, my eldest brother, he was an exceptional player, fabulous talent and many people thought in our family if anybody was gonna make the grade as a, as an elite player, it would be him. Sadly he went to West Ham when he was sort of fifteen, sixteen, got a couple of bad injuries and, and unfortunately didn't pursue a career. But, you know, playing up local was, was, was really good. I paid for my local Sunday team and you know, some of the pitches then, I mean, <laughs> what they play on today, I mean, uh, you know, it was, um, no, it, it, it was like a cow field at times, to be quite honest with you. But, you know, playing locally, you know, playing for a local football team and, and, and also having, you know, I was kind of fairly fortunate because I got rejected by a number of clubs. You know, I had trials at, at Chelsea, had trials at Luton Town, had trials at West Ham. Um, you know all said I weren't good enough so you know you lose that rejection you lose that confidence and and, and, and you know to be honest with you I was playing on a common in, in, in south east London and that's where my very first club and it was a common not far from the football club and a scout picked me up randomly says Paul we like you I was like a, a little speedy right winger then um, didn't have the, obviously the, the, the kind of physicality but I was fast I was mobile very nimble playing as a right wing and he says listen you know, we think you've got something. Why don't you come down? And I was a bit, in honesty, I, I was disillusioned because nobody likes rejection. Nobody likes being told that you're good enough. And I remember, you know, they say adversity breeds character. I just kept plugging away. I just kept going and um, kept chasing my aspirations and my dreams. And then when I went to Cholton, you know, at uh, sort of 15 years of age, you know, within about sort of seven or eight months, I was in the youth team then straight in the reserves and and, and days, you know, as I was leaving school, which was very unusual, I got my debut uh, in in the first team against Crystal Palace. So it literally was like, a, you know, I went in there as a boy and then you become a man overnight when you're in that structured environment because you had players who were sort of 27, 28, who were very mature, who who looked very mature. And I was like a young 16, 17-year-old boy, you, you, you know but obviously you know I was fairly big for my age and fairly strong um so whilst I was physically mature, obviously I wasn't emotionally mature, so that was the sort of difference to that integration into the football club was really, really good, and I learned so much
3: just before we we move on to your career um and it's something that it's a mainstay, and it's been it's a, a recurrent theme. And you're so open about it as well. And it's it is the issue of racism. Um, yeah, when you when you, when you were growing up, you know, in South London, as you say, um, the, the opportunities the, they were still there. But even at that young age, were you aware of societal racism? I, I understand that's a, a quite a big question.
1: Yes, because ultimately, you know, my mother and father, first generation immigrants from Jamaica, they grew up in that. They're coming to this country. You know, and and there were obvious challenges, you know. But, you know, it's quite interesting because, you know, my mum and dad, you know, particularly my dad, he had a lot of Irish and Scottish friends that they used to go to the pub with and have a drink because basically, you you know, different colours, but same principles, different cultures, isn't it? Because obviously, you know, blacks were excluded just as much as Irish people and Scottish people as well. So you had that sort of um, level of exclusion societally, Socially, uh, so there 's only sort of certain pubs they know they could go to and be felt welcome that 's why they had their own parties and basically you know done their own thing and so we had a very um, sort of diverse eclectic mix of upbringing, having different friends and you know having Irish people and Scottish people who my, my dad's friends in particular so i I was aware and, and cognizant of those challenges that was going on and, and obviously, as I got older you, you know um, You know, you saw the issues then with the, uh, they called it, then it was the National Front, who was the equivalent of the BNP. And you saw the presence that they had on the streets, particularly in areas like Lewisham, where it was very, very difficult and they had a strong visibility. So you had to be careful. There were certain areas that you could just not go socially. You know, you just couldn't. And, um, you know, when we moved from Lewisham into Woolwich, you know, we, we didn't live far from where Stephen Lawrence you know, was actually brutally murdered. So I was growing up in that area, knowing that you could. There was just certain places that you just could not go. You know, because you were susceptible to being, uh, you know, to, to 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 meeting the wrong people at the wrong time. And 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 I always had that instinct about that in football as well. When I was young, when we used to play, you know, sometimes we used to get sort of called names, people referring to your to your ethnicity, using that to support you, but it's just ignorance, isn't it? Lack of education, ignorance, uh, such uh, uh, you know, vulturel, and obviously, you know, so that kind of I suppose gave me the awareness, the understanding, which is why I remember my mum always saying to me, Paul, you know, you've got to be twice as good to be even to get the opportunity. And I think that's always – I've used that as a catalyst to fuel my motivation to go over and beyond because, you, you know, as I've seen with the work I'm sure will come in and talk that I've done over the last sort of 25, 30 years, everything that I've done I can see now how it's played out through my life from, from grassroots to the park, you, you know, um, and then the whole way it's come through the whole sort of footballing system – and that unconscious bias, and that you know the racism, and some of the despicable verbal abuse that, that that one experienced. But how I it shaped me for life. It gave me that extra layer of skin, motivation, application, attitude, dedication, and focus to really be to really go for it with real vigor to become a you know to become fulfill my my, my career dream. So. I was aware of it. I was conscious of it, you know. There was abuse you were getting from other people. Yeah, I was a little bit naughty at times where I retaliated. Absolutely, I was a young boy. you know. But I was very lucky because I had two older brothers. So I was like the younger brother. So I was very protected as well. Although I was susceptible as well, I was protected as well. So I was very lucky. So we were, you know, we endured those challenges through that kind of schooling, grassroots system, and obviously thereafter you know when when my professional career started wow, <laughs> it went into a, another it went exponentially then all the issues of race because as we know you know it's a big issue in society and it was those in society that you know that used to plant themselves in football stadiums and black players uh, of my generation you know we were the prime prime targets for all that uh, virtue and uh, abuse
3: Absolutely, and you know, like you say, fans obviously fans represent society. So when when you made that move into to Charlton, obviously as you said, you you made your debut at sixteen. What was the environment like in the in the dressing room? Obviously, sixteen young guy and a a young black guy in
1: the team. Yeah, I mean I was quite lucky because you know Charlton had a basically had a history of of, of, of you know pubs were always comfortable with Charlton. I remember down the road was Millwall, and in fact Millwall in terms of having black players, Millwall were, were on the same level as children. You had players, I remember that time, you had Phil Walker, who was a black player then He was playing back in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the 70s. He was kind of like one of my heroes. You had Trevor Lee, you know, and then latterly thereafter, they had John Fashionew as well. So, you know, Millwall, because if you, if you go, to be quite frank, you know, where Millwall's sort of situated in, in an area called New Cross in south-east London, it's, you know ninety nine point nine percent you know uh, you know black asian uh, just ninety nine percent say black people that used to live there, but only those in the stadium were predominantly white, you know so that said to you the the power of the club and and, and obviously it probably evidenced the challenges that were there um, and I think you know Charlton, Charlton was a fabulous dressing room i had a, i mean I had one naughty experience and I remember. When, you know, we were having like an overnight stay, one of the very times that I stayed in a hotel. And I remember, you know, this was a sort of, it was ignorance, really. One of the players who, who I won't name his name, but he actually said to me, you know, um, should we get some cum for Paul? So that was like in the morning when you were having breakfast. And if you're a young 16-year-old kid, that's very, very hurtful, you know. And I remember that was saying to me, whilst, you know, the, the, the whole environment was good, I really enjoyed the club. I liked the club. You still, in one or two individuals, you still had that bigoted, um, you know, antisocial, uh, uh, ignorant behaviours. And, and obviously, I realised that in truth, that was really a, a real microcosm of the bigger, bigger experiences that I'd seen and, and, in, and in all the different playing environments that I saw, not just in society, but within football, within football clubs, within football stadiums.
3: Do you think that sort of environment, you know, in- intensified it? As you see, there, there wasn't the education like like there is now or, or what there should be now back then. Do you think the, the dressing room, the, the atmosphere intensified it?
1: Um In an extent, yes, but also there was a very, very, the, the other side of the fence was that people didn't understand the boundaries of banter, you know, <laughs> and, and I'm one, I, you know... I'm, I'm so I laugh I laugh I laugh I you, you know I don't have an issue when I hear jokes about different things but you have to think about your behaviours now. But then it was really a free for because there was no boundaries, you know, and everybody deemed. I mean, there was a you know, listen, I don't, I don't think Amy, you were even born then. There was a program there called Love Thy Neighbor, and that kind of perpetuated the racial stereotypes. And it was a TV program. And they used to use you know language that was very, very acceptable when you had a programme with Alf Garnet, who was a historical West Ham supporter and they were using language that was just the norm and it was given, it was considered as the norm, which was really unpalatable you know, at that juncture, um, but it became standardised, nuanced parlances that people used and it was wholly acceptable. So then, you know, because nobody knew any better, but I knew as a black man it was offensive but it's very hard for you to stand up and say, well, as a minority, hey, that's not right. But I have to do that eventually. And I did do that when you had more confidence in oneself and, and, and also, you know, the influence that I made as my career evolved and I became a very successful footballer. So it, it was norm. It's a norm. It was just standardised, acceptable parlance at that juncture, at that living in that time, because nobody knew any better and also in the stadiums, there wasn't a, a legislative framework. There wasn't the law that actually says such disgusting, reprehensible abuse is unlawful. This is against the law. This is, you know, if you are behaved, if you get caught in this way, you are going to be punished for the rejection from the stadium. But none of that was there. It was basically, I call it quite soft, it's quite simple. It's like the Wild West, to be quite frank with you. And, but that hardened being, people saying, well, you shouldn't have had to put up with that. Well, We didn't know any better. Look what my mum and dad, my grandmother, all the people that I love, look what they've had to put up in the previous generation. So I just saw that as, you know, well, Paul, you've just got to do that to get through to be the best you can be. And then I realised about you becoming a role model and people started to look up to you. So that was the the other motivation as well. So all those sort of attitudes and behaviours, it gave me a, an extra steely resolve, but I was still human, still immature at 16, 17, you know, and you're out there getting, you know, abuse, you, you know, being spat at, you know, abuse from the supporters when you're in possession of the ball. monkey chanting, bananas thrown at you, coins thrown at you. It's a lot for a person to to, to endure, let alone a very young person. This week
0: on The Marketer's Report, Patrizio Spagnoletto, Global Chief Marketing Officer, direct-to-consumer for Warner Brothers Discovery, weighs in on building trust.
4: Trust is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy. And we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship
0: with the on-air talent. As the number one audio company, iHeart gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the data you need to grow. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Oh yeah.
3: Absolutely. And as you say, you you did have a very successful career and, and right from the off you, you got a very big move. You you went to Luton Town, first yeah. division club at that time. Uh, what was that like?
1: Amy, it was amazing because I tell you the reason why, because I mean i have done great, I loved Chelten, it was my first club and to be honest with you, it was very interesting because there was rumors about that Arsenal wanted to buy me. And you know, apparently they came to watch me and I was so excited. And I remember there's a paper called The Evening Standard, which sort of covers all the, the London news. And it had in there oh, um, Arsenal preparing to make sort of a £400,000 bid for young Charlton Starlet, Paul Elliott. And I was like so excited when I saw my name in the paper. And obviously you believe that you're not mature enough to understand all the nuances that go on and all the, the paper talk. And um, and when when Charlton had a lot of issues, financial problems, and, you know, when I heard that... You know, I remember uh, it was Lenny Lawrence calling me into the dressing room. He said to me, Paul, you know, we're dreadfully sorry that we've had to sell you. There's a club that wants to buy you. You know, we're going to drive you to a hotel in, um, in Essex. And I'm thinking, it's Arsenal, it's Arsenal, it's Arsenal, it's Arsenal. I was terribly excited. I couldn't even sort of, you know, speak to my mum. So I'm in the car and he's saying, Paul, we're in trouble, blah, 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 blah. And then when I got to the hotel, he says, Paul, I'm going to tell you who the club is, and he says, "It's Luton Town," and I felt like I, I felt like collapsing. To be honest with you, I'm thinking, damn, I want to, come. but I have to say, you know, after listening to David Pleet, who was the manager then, I was 18 years of age. After 10 minutes, I knew this was the club I wanted to join. It was a wonderful club, and. To be honest with you, oddly, I've kept all these years. That was over 30 years ago. And I spoke with David Pleat last week. We still keep in touch. I saw him at the Wembley FA Cup final, So we're friends, we text. And I said to him, David, you know, I've played for some big clubs. I've played for a lot of clubs. But I can't tell you how happy I was at Luton. Not just on the field, but off the field, in the dressing room. And I says, you created that culture. And it's quite interesting, Amy, because he was Jewish. So obviously he understood about the anti-Semitism, the challenges that that he had. He was as as a Jewish player, then becoming a a Jewish manager. And then I remember one particular game. We had about eight black players with Luton Town playing against Sunderland, uh, Southampton. Sorry, and it was just you know unbelievable. You know the people just thinking, you know, where's all this diversity come from? You know all these black players. So David, he was very much a pioneer in his time and he was one that he fought the fault. you know he gave everybody the chances equal opportunities because that's what it was all about you know regardless of their race color religion gender disability sexuality etc it's about giving equal opportunities and David was just simply a wonderful man so my time at Luton was brilliant because we had about regularly playing with four or five players in the black you know so you had Ricky Hill Brian Steen, and I, Joby, you had Ray Daniels, you had Mitchell Thomas, you know, myself. So that's not, you know, so to so have that diversity in, in the dressing room, but it was a brilliant dressing room. You know, David created, it's all about culture. It's all talk about culture in football and working environments, we had an amazing culture in the football club, and that was done by David Please, So it's the most brilliant move, and I've got so much affection for that club.
3: I guess that's kind of what you're promoting now, you know, and we'll definitely come on to it later, but mm. it's that culture, at least. So David Plate himself, Jewish, you're having, you have diversity within in the structure of the club. That that was un, unknown back then.
1: Absolutely. Listen, he was the very, very first. I mean, you know, and, and I think we got beat in the game or whatever. It was probably, all, you know, and saying, no, it's all the black players' fault, we got beat, you know, but 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 David, he, he, you know when you talk about true game changers, and he had to be brave to do that, you know, because he would have been under a lot of pressure. And and and, and Luton was a very diverse local community, but you know it was he, he was a very very brave man, and and that's how you you know you change culture. And when, as you say, when I, I was having a conversation with the the English FA, where I was in a board meeting, and we're talking about. We have to change culture for organisations to evolve, you know, like, you know, governing bodies, institutions in business, charity, you know, across football. You know, it's all about culture. You get the culture right, and there's a wonderful dono effect. If the culture's wrong, you will not be successful. And it's the same with football. And so, you, you know, you could have the wrong culture off the field, and that will permutate itself into the dressing room and also onto the field of play. And great managers like Sir Alex Ferguson, great managers like, you know, Jock Steen, you know, what they'd done, they created great cultures in the dressing room and, and it was like the golden thread that runs throughout the whole of the club from, you know, the little lady that used to come and clean, you know, clean the boots, you know, you know, do do all the cleaning, all, all the all the all the, 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 the you know the mundane tasks. They had as much self importance as your number nine striker. Everybody was treated the same. And equitably. And you find that all the big clubs, that's why Sir Alex and Jock Steen, who great sort of heroes of mine, they were not just great managers, but great people because of where they come from and the humility and their background. So culture for me is critical to success. I don't know a team yet that's got a bad culture and a successful.
3: You, you talk about great people and I, I think that's a perfect blend into to your next move. You were at Aston Villa and um, you were under, the, the, the for us, the, the great Billy McNeil.
1: Yeah, big Billy. I mean, I um, what a great man he was. And, and I remember, you know, he came at the club in a kind of, it's like a period of transition to be quite honest with you. Um, and I think then, yeah, he had already left Celtic, went down to, yeah, he left Celtic, went Man City, then come to, to to Aston Villa, and you know, it was challenging, but it, it was you know this man had a presence. My goodness me, you know, when he come out, you know, his big barrel chest, you know, <laughs> sticking out, you know, and, uh, and 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 we had a fantastic relationship, and, and it was just great because he was a centre half, well, a world class centre half, a leader, and obviously I couldn't have had any better. I couldn't have had a better role model to learn from, to support me, to mentor me to show me to impact with me and and it was great so obviously you know things didn't work out things weren't fantastic for him on the field but then but villa was a big club a huge club very diverse fan base and it was a period of transition because they had so much success in the 80s when they won the european cup so you know someone like big billy to be fair he was just the right he was the right person you know, possibly at the wrong time because you're in that period of transition and transition, you need patience, you know, and and football is a relentless business. You don't get the patience and the time you want. So, um, you know, but it was great for me to to engage with him, work alongside him and obviously build a relationship with him because it was on the back of that relationship that obviously we we reconnected when I'd done my time in Italy and, and obviously went to Celtic.
3: Absolutely. so you, you touched on it there what um, what attracted you to Italy you know I think even now in the game we'll, we'll touch upon it there is a, <laughs> there's a societal racism even to, to a greater extent in Italy so, so what took you out there
1: I was young only 23 you know uh, I always say I went there a boy and come back a man uh, and, and and I think At that time, I mean, Italy was easily... It was was the equivalent of the Premier League today. It was the number one league in the world. I remember, you know, my first game was against AC Milan. You know, you had Hullet, Van Basten, Reichard, Maldini, Beresi, Costa Corto. I mean, I could tell you the whole team, you know. And then my second game was against Naples, against Napoli. I marked Maradona. I remember all my family coming over to watch me in Italy play against Maradona. You know the third game we played against uh, Juventus. I was marking here Rush then because he. So you know every you, you know you were playing, you were playing against players, the best players in the world at the peak of their careers. So for me, I was so honoured, you know, to be this young, you know, uh, uh, black boy from south-east London from Lewisham, come through the ranks, forged a professional career. You know, I was just thinking sort of Cholton, Luton, Aston Villa, and then when. Um, When Pisa came calling, I'm thinking, well, they just, they were very, in many respects, it reminded me of Luton because they got promoted from Serie B. Just like when I went to Luton then, who were then in the first division, they got promoted from Division 2. So there was that continuity uh, in the squad where there was all young players, all come locally. and, 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 And Pisa was very much like that. It was a great club, a great time. And the other foreign player was a guy called Carlos Dunga, who was the Brazilian player, Brazilian manager, because at that time, each club could uh, Amy could only have two foreign players. So I felt really special, you know, to make me feel, well, they chose me. I was one of the chosen ones. Um, and how the move came about, they watched me actually when I was at Aston Villa because they were very interested in Mark Walters. We had a friendly wow. Pisa against uh, Aston Villa. We went out to Italy and Mark, he had some problems with his hamstrings. And it just so happens that I just sort of flourished and then they came back. They were watching me over a period of three or four months. And during that time, i recall playing against Kenny Daglish, Mark Hughes, Kerry Dixon, Gary Lineker, Graham Sharp, and Ian Rush, critically, who Juventus had a pre-contractor signed yeah. for 3.5 million. So they're thinking, well, we've seen this guy. He, you know, I mean, I had a purple patch. I mean, I, I had a, let's just say I had a great two months. Um, and that was the catalyst to, uh, to the move.
3: You um you, you you touched upon some some great names there. What are your memories of of Hulet, Maradona, um Ian Rush? Like you say, they are they are in their prime.
1: Yeah, and and, and, and you, know, Hulet, um, you know I mean he was unbelievable because he's built like a middleweight boxer. <laughs> I mean he had, he had this stature, he had this presence, this authority on the pitch, and he he's probably one of the very few players in the world that I've seen you've got your Ronaldo's and your Messi's and your Maradonis, he's obviously at that level he could be effective anywhere on the pitch but he had a great work ethic and that was the start of the great you know AC Milan team and then Van Basten simply in terms of the centre forward he arguably was, you know, for me, the best centre forward of all, one of the best, I mean, it's probably the best centre forward I have ever, ever, ever played. He had everything, height, stature, speed, technical ability, tremendous movement, aggressive, great team player. And Maradona, I mean, it was like, <clears throat> um, well, I got sent off, actually, because I, I, I clumped Maradona on the halfway line, I got a red card, actually. So uh, I was a bit naughty, got a red card, but playing against him, it's like he had magic in his feet magic he didn't know what he was doing at had a low sense of gravity he just had this unbelievable repertoire of skill sets you know and I know when we were playing them previously in, in the warm up he had his own physio he was warming up and he was like you know playing keep me up with two oranges you know doing all these skills with the two oranges simultaneously I mean it was like just mass you know entertainment so he was just spectacular the phenomenal so so I suppose I was so privileged to you know to 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 be in that company and more importantly you know make a positive contribution on behalf of uh, of Pisa and and so I really felt that my whole game technically tactically I was more mature I learned to speak the language I I integrated myself into the culture which is very important you know could speak fluent Italian after sort of seven or eight months. And I love my two years there, to be quite frank. And, and also I've got many friends still. My best friend, you know, a guy called Luca Ciccone, you know, he is the very first guy I met 35 years ago or got introduced to, you, you know, we text each other, I WhatsApp him, you know, three days ago. So, you know, those relationships are brilliant, very important, significant relationships. And I went back just before... Um, Lockdown, it was about six months before lockdown, they opened a, 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 a museum in Pisa and they asked me to go and opened it. And it was, you know, you made feel so, so welcome. Yeah. So it was brilliant, wonderful.
3: I think in, in recent times, you know, there's been quite a lot of attention on the way that how racism is still so prevalent in the Italian game, you know. There's mm-hmm. been Moise Keane, Mario Balotelli, Romelu yeah. Lukaku. So it's still so prevalent now. Why why do you feel that you know there have been advancements here and and we'll definitely come on to that it's not a an issue that's been cured or solved but we've made advancements and we've made improvements but italy it doesn't quite seem the case
1: it's it's a very challenging environment italy because i think the problem is there's a lot of you know you've got obviously the the ultras you've got that sort of fascist side of the of, of the attitudes and these a lot of those people they've got tremendous power it's the what they've done, they've, they've got a toxic mix of of the politics, you know, in the and that creates a lot of that extremist type of behaviour. And it was evident to me, um, and, and that's why historically, for the beauty, I mean, Italy. I can't say to you, I mean, I, I mean, I've been very lucky to travel the world. It's probably one of the most beautiful countries in the world. Okay. The people, the food, you, you, you know. The, Everything about the country the, 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 the culture that side of the culture, the historical buildings very warm and I know that I was very fortunate because I went there as an as a eminent prominent footballer, but then if you go six hundred meters from the stadium, then you you see the other ugly side of, of you know for the beauty, you see great social deprivation, you see you know the, you know a lot of the the immigration and and to be quite frank, Italy, like, a, you know, like a lot of other countries, they've got that racism, that internalised racism within their own culture. Because you've got the North, which is very prosperous, very affluent. And you've got the South, where there's a lot of se- social deprivation and a lot of poverty. And, the, and they've got yellow skin, uh, Italians in, in the South. And you've got the Northern, which is like more white, you know, like your complexion, say, Amy. And what they do... The North called the South Africans. Yeah. So that you know, dysfunctional uh, culture is embedded. It's embedded in, in in the fabric of their culture. So when you've got that, you know, their own against each other, you know, what chance does somebody, you know, who who's of a of a darker shade of skin, gonna have? So I was just lucky. Because obviously I went there as a as, as a footballer, so I was I was treated well. You know, you're looked after, so you're not really susceptible to a lot of those kind of social and cultural challenges. You know, I was very closeted in in that context, but obviously that was only closeted until I got on the field of play. You know, <laughs> you know, I got a lot of abuse, a lot of issues in in obviously Italy, but I soon realised the issues of racism discrimination prejudice you know it comes in all different guises and forms and it's you know it's throughout the whole world but obviously it manifests a lot around football because football is the vehicle and the catalyst for those right-wing extremists to launch their recruitment drives it was the same in the uk you know the, the national front the bmp they were still they've done the same thing and it's also happened in Italy. So you know, it, it was prevalent. Let's be honest with you. That was that political alignment. You know, they've all got their political um, uh, uh, engagement with their respective party. That was a prominent part of football. That's the reality of the situation.
3: Absolutely, and as you see, the uh, discrimination comes in many forms. You make the move to Glasgow, obviously. Billy McNeil is our deciding factor. Were there other clubs interested at you at that time? Like you see, yeah. you're, you're coming to a good age. You, you've got a, a fantastic career behind you. Um, who, who else were the, the sort of clubs well, interested? Well, I know
1: because um, Brian Clough was then at Nottingham Forest. They, uh, he was very interested in signing me. So was QPR and so was West Ham. They were the three clubs that, that expressed a serious level of interest. Um, and Chelsea were kind of hovering around as well. But, to be honest with you, I mean, it was Mark Walters. You know, Mark was my best mate in football. We played together at England. We were always, we played at Aston Villa. And we always, you know, went out socially. And he rang me. And, and then when it was, you know, there was some rumour factory. You know, I got some calls from some journalists in Scotland and that. say, listen, you know, big man, you know, what do you think? You know, I've heard that Celtic are interested in you. Blah, 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 blah. I said, Celtic? Really? You know, I'm thinking, wow. So I just thought at that juncture...
0: Trust
4: is a really hard thing to build and a really easy thing to destroy. And we have to be very respectful about that. Our partnership with iHeart has really helped us build that trust and that relationship with the on-air talent.
0: As the number one audio company, iHeart Media gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the data you need to grow. Go to iHeartResults.com for more.
1: 25, you know, still had another five years, you know. So I thought, well, yeah, I could go back to say England, back to then the First Division, but would, look at the experience I would have missed out. I knew about Celtic, you knew about Jotstein, Billy McNeil, you, you know, the history of the club, the tradition of the club. And also I remember growing up, sort of, and also in my career, I knew in London, you had like the Celtic supporters clubs. You know, there were some in South London, some in Kilburn, and that was the alignment with the Irish community, you know. So I knew that they existed. So I knew that, you know, Celtic was really bigger than a football club. It was like an institution. So my instinct said Because I had that kind of nomadic instinct in me, you know, left home when I was young, went to, you know, Luton Town, big move. Aston Villa, big move. Celtic, big move. I thought, well, at 25, let's go to Scotland. Let's go to Glasgow. And and let's be honest, quite frankly, I absolutely adored my time in, in Glasgow. In Scotland, And more importantly, I love the people. It's the values, the integrity, the humour. It was just off the scale for me. I just love the humour. And for all the challenges that I had, obviously with the, uh, with the racist abuse, it was superseded by the most wonderfulest, kindness, funniest people that I've ever come across with a great sense of integrity. I loved it. I loved it.
3: You you do mention Mark Walters and actually just last night I watched the documentary um, where where he talks through obviously his time at Rangers um, and you know I it's, it's the first time I've really seen, I've seen his first game, his mm-hmm. his debut was a, a a Derby, an old farm Derby and the, the bananas are getting thrown on then yeah. there's the week after he, he plays hearts and there's coins getting thrown as well as the bananas. Yeah. How, how does he sell it to you then? What what brings you there? You know that's one of one of your best friends. You're you're, you're aware yeah. he's went through that. How how do you how does he I sell mean, he that?
1: Just, I mean, because I think we were both mature enough. We had, a, we, had a, we had a grown up conversation. I says, Mark, you know, you know, I says, Am I going to get grief up there? He says, Big man, everywhere you go, you're going to get grief because that's the world. But he says the good supersedes the bad, and he's and and, 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 and to be honest with you, he was very open, and, and I just thought, well. I knew he was getting that kind of grief. So I'm thinking at that point, you know, you've got a top player who's a black player at Rangers. I could be going become that equivalent at Celtic. And then we could use the power of that to, to try and make that social change through the power of football. So be assured that future strategy, you know, because I'd like to feel like I've done the same in Italy. You know, I went there, <laughs> challenging circumstances, People look at you give, and then you leave there saying, you know, they're looking at you now as a through football, as a good footballer, but also a good human being and, a, and, and demonstrating to people, well, you don't judge people, you know, by, by, by the colour of their skin. Judge them by the content of their character, their hearts, their behaviours. So is that, there's that sort of, byproduct of that kind of that education to mobilize people and using your own power. You don't realise it at the time, but by being successful, Amy, that gives you a platform, it gives you confidence. People then approach you, you pro and then you can use that platform to talk about the other issues, you know. And you have to be brave to do that, you know, because obviously, you know, I've been criticized and there's no problems with criticism because people don't want to hear people with power and influence <laughs> trying to make change, they've got their own agenda. But really, you know, people realised that what I was doing was using my power wisely, judiciously and constructively to make change and bring people on the journey. Um, So I can see where Mark was coming from, but in many respects, the more he said that, I thought about all my previous moves and my, my kind of legacy in that sense, you know? And I think, well, imagine if I could go to Scotland and, and have a similar impact as a footballer on the field of play, and then use that leverage, you know, to talk about and challenge the other issues around uh, racism and bigotry.
3: Absolutely, and it, it was more than a successful stint at Celtic for yourself. The the club, perhaps not so much. What did you know? Obviously, uh, Jock Stein and Billy McNeil. But at that time, who were you impressed with uh, as your as your teammates? You know, like you say, it was a tricky well, thing it, for the it, side. I mean,
1: I mean, yeah, and I mean, I knew, I mean, Paul McStay, I mean, I remember when I was a kid growing up in, in south-east London, in Lewisham, and I remember watching this programme about the, we call him the hat, Jack the Hat, but, but, you know and I remember watching a programme about Paul McStay, and he must have been about 16, 17. And I remember Inter Milan were trying to sign him, you know, and they said they were prepared to pay then about, Three, four, five hundred thousand pounds, which is just an astronomical amount of money. Big money. And I remember him. I mean, he played for Scotland, you know, under fifteen schoolboys right the way through. And they were saying that this guy is going to be the next world, you know, international superstar. You know, and he was so revered. So he was one that I watched, and I so I knew he was obviously at Scotland uh, at, at, in Scotland playing for for Celtic. And I knew you, I knew you know big D Derek White. You had Josie Miller. You know, you had uh, uh, John Hewitt. He was a he a left he was a left winger, very talented player. And I then remember that um um John um you had um up front um Jack Darius Jackanowski was a great you know when he came from Poland he was I mean he's one of my best mates and we're still in touch today, uh, and he was a really top 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 player. And then Darius so all of a sudden. It was like an international, diverse yeah. dressing room, and, and and again that was a period of of uh, of, of transition. Um, so I mean I loved the boys; they were, they were great lads, great set of lads. You know Chris Morris, Anton Rogan, Paki Bonner. You know they're great. You know I know Peter Grant. You know Granty. You, you know um, so it was a fabulous dressing room and a great set of lads, and and, and I. To be honest with you, I mean, what I really loved, I mean, I loved the big games, you know, with Rangers, and I was very lucky because, I mean, Rangers, I mean, again, you know, I could pick off their team. I mean, I knew Soonest was a good lad, but, you know, you had sort of Terry Butcher, Richard Goff, John Brown, Bomber Brown, you, you know, you had um, uh, the fullback, uh, 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 Gary was at Everton, you had Trevor Stephen, Gary Stephen, you had, you know, um, who else was there? Trevor Hurlock. You know, um, you're up front you have obviously Mo Johnston, Ali McCoy, Smart Hatley. So you know, it just it, a you know they rattles them off. You, you just don't, and and there were there were the most brilliant games. I loved playing in the old Ferbs because I I loved playing on a big stage on the big platform because that was your time for me. You know, to to, to make your name. Um, so I, I loved it. You know, and I love yeah, and you know the intensity of the social thing. You have got the, the two biggest clubs in Scotland within a, a three mile radius, but. I love the intensity of that. I love the intensity of the pressure of the big games, the media build-up, the games itself, and then thereafter socially. So it was absolutely magnificent, you know. The, and, and obviously, you know, winning the Scottish Player of the Year, the first black player to win that, and that was very important because that sensed the trend. Because I think about what three or four months ago, I've done some pieces to camera, you know, about with Sky about the old firm and, and looking at the whole diversity. And I was like one of the first prominent, you know, black individuals to play for Celtic and diversity now is fixture and fitting in, in, in the Scottish game. So that's the evolution, you know, of diversity and how the clubs, the brilliant work that both Celtic and Rangers and others do in the community, how it's really paid dividends to, to welcome people to, uh, to Scotland and Glasgow.
3: They say um, you you thrived on the big stage, and and with a big stage brings brings a big crowd. You touched on as well, uh, jackanowski the the European nights. I think yeah. of that, the, the Partisan Belgrade game. You know, it, it, it's still not enough to, to put Celtic through. But how did how much did you revel in you know the the, the fans, the, the hundreds, of thousands oh, of fans?
1: My good, I, I I I mean, I could imagine how you know thinking about the, the lockdown. Imagine, I know the suffering of all the fans, but I think about supporters like Celtic who are just totally immersed in the culture of the club. So I don't know how they've suffered. I don't know how they've managed in this brutal adversity. But the supporters, that's where it was, it was a way of life. You know, we've spoken, we've touched on culture. Celtic is a culture. Celtic is a way of life. There is a way, there is a manner, there is a behaviour, there is an attitude, there is a sincerity... There's an engagement. Uh, there's a movement. Celtic is a movement of a culture that embraces all the good things about people, attitudes, behaviors. You know, you know, if if the other person hasn't got a lot, somebody will break off their so and so and help. You know, there's there's a it's a culture of 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 sharing, of respect, of humanity, of decency, all the good things in in. That you want from people and, and human and social behaviors. And that's what really struck a chord with me. And that's why I think, you know, I, I kind of really galvanized towards that, you know, because I, I knew that it was special. It's like, I mean, you could, it was, if you could bottle it and, and it'd be worth billions of pounds because the club's a global brand, isn't it? It's a global brand, Celtic. And it's that culture that has created that brand, that specialness. I mean, I think Liverpool's got it. I think Celtic's got it. I think Rangers... You now, there's certain kind of clubs. They have that cult. They have that. And and Celtic, unequivocally, globally, they've got that. They've, and they've got, the, they've got such this nice way about them, you know, that I just find... As I think... And I say, I think a lot of people have that in the North anyway, to be honest with you, because there's a different... Uh, Social, demographic, and upbringing, and, and you have different type of values, you know, that I don't necessarily always see in other in other areas of the country. So that really struck struck a chord with me, you know, that really did, and I just I I just couldn't understand the the intensity how their whole life was central in the football club, you know, everything that went on in the football club was the key component in the DNA of their life. You know, so they're social, you know, their their personal, you know, yeah. their work in life, you know, all the areas of their life. Celtic was that, you know, you know when we talk about, I say, my work, equality, diversity and inclusion, EDI has got to be that central theme and embedded in the culture. That's got to be the golden thread for our football organisations, businesses, you know. That's the same way I felt about the Celtic culture. It was embedded in in the whole of the DNA, and I and, and it was remarkable, remarkable, extraordinary to be quite frank.
3: You do you you talk about the legacy that you've left pretty much at every club you've um, you've played for, and you say that they are obviously Player of the Year. Trailblazer is a is a big word, but. How that, that ultimately is, is what you were, went, being the first black man to win that. How, mm.
1: how
3: much pride do you hold in that?
1: Massive, massive. Because it was a very... I mean, you're talking in 1989, wasn't it? You know, when, when I arrived and... Because I suppose I looked at... It, I, I reflected on my, my upbringing, my journey in the game. And, and I think I've sort of taken on similar types of those principles with the work that I do. The first, say black person to sit on the FA board and chair a board and you know and the FA counts you you know because I wanted to make that transition but it's pride isn't it because I think while supporters I mean I know I won numerous sort of player of the year Celtic player of the year but when you speak to a a professional footballer an ex-professional footballer you know the respect of the people you work with or, or compete against is arguably the most important respect that I was lucky; I had both. But I talk as, a, as an elite sportsman. You know that you, the, the people that you compete and participate with and against, their opinions of you is the most important opinion. You know, more than journalists, and um, arguably more than supporters. You know, because there could be there could be a number of reasons why supporters don't like somebody. You know, but your your fellow professional brethren, their consideration and estimation of you is 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 the most important psychological and professional emotional feeling that's the most important thing to me as 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 a man and a player.
3: And I say to to the country, to the league, you know, a shining light in the team where there where there wasn't many lights at that time. Is there anything that Celtic could have done to, to keep you, to, to save you no, moving down
1: south? because, you know, I had a, Obviously, there was some challenges I had with the board. I and mean, then these things happen. Everybody falls out. You, you know, you fall out of teammates, media, you know. But I think, if I'm being honest with you, it was all about timing. You know, I was yeah. 27, you know. And, and, and to be honest, Amy... I had four or five big moves then, because if you, and I think you probably might understand, you know, most centre-halves, you know, like a Roy Aitken, like a Tommy Burns, you you know, I'll just use them for example, you know, particularly as defenders, you'd stay at one club for 10 years, wouldn't you? Billy McNeil, you, you know, you'd have your whole career at one club. But I had this nomadic, interesting, eclectic mix of, Moves in different cultures, in different environments, different working environments. And I think that was, and it was so, uh, it was unheard of. Defenders in my generation would never move, you know, only midfield players or forwards would move with that frequency like they do today, you know. But that was very um, uncharacteristic. And I just felt at that time, 27, you know, peak of my game you know, had two fabulous years, you know, and that was just the time for me to, to, to go back home to, to London. And obviously the Chelsea thing was a perfect situation because they were a big club, a huge club, you know, under-tap club. And um, um, one of my biggest, um, you know, satisfaction, I suppose, or achievements at Celtic, that Chelsea was being their first black captain. Because again, Chelsea... Back in the, you know, the, the 70s, I remember playing against Chelsea in really challenging circumstances as a 16, 17-year-old boy and getting absolutely, you know, the abuse was just reprehensible. So to have seen the evolution of Chelsea, you know, Ken Bates was a great man, a great owner, really liked him. And then obviously, you, you know, that the following year, sort of the, the Premier League started. So Chelsea, in many respects, was going from that kind of domestic sort of toxic area into an international global brand that attracted you, Rude Hullitz, Glenn Hoddles, Gianluca Viallis, the fan base was then, it was an international global club. So, you know, that was so attractive. I inherit, you know, so, yeah, it, but, it, but it was great satisfaction. So I, I really, and, and I think, if I look at my move, every move I made, there's obviously a right football in. Uh, imperative behind that but I think there was a social and an ethical and a moral imperative behind the moves as well for the impact to challenge the social norms and and, and all the issues and the challenges that I had through leveraging my power as a as a leader you know as as a centre half as, as as the captain of the field to lead to drive to inspire and that obviously reverberates and impacts people as well so I kind of feel that Everything that happened to me—you don't know it at the time—but that journey was meant to happen because that gave me the seamless transition into the work that I'm doing now. You know, so now I'm no longer can talk on the field of play, but I talk in front of TV cameras, I talk in boards, councils, committees. You know, to make that difference. So the very, the very same uh, continuity of messaging from the field of play as a leader, as an example, as you know. I'm now, I've got that continuity in my DNA, but doing it in a different way, in a more meaningful way, probably, where you need to make those changes to get greater diversity, inclusion and equality, uh, uh, um, you know, into football, you know, from the boardrooms, you know, into football business, into, you, you know, into boards, councils, committees, community jobs. So that whole inclusion and diversity is such a critical, and that's been exemplified by the last 14 months and George Floyd and everything that's gone on and all the issues that I have, the challenges that I have, you know, that many people have experienced around institutional, structural, systemic, systematic racism, social inequalities, all that has come out in the world. And I I travelled the world, you know, as a young player, seeing all that, experience and all that but then it's sort of the manifestation of that you know in you know in the world itself you know through what's gone on by this you know poor man that that that, that brutally uh, murdered and the good that's going to come from that so you know that's been this unbelievable journey so you know I always said if 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 you know, I think there's a, a lot more miles left. I'm still a relatively young man, but if everything, my life stopped tomorrow, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy. But I don't, I want more life because I've got lots to do, more people to change, to affect, to challenge, to mobilise, to lead and to, to make continual change.
3: Talking about change, and like you say, that is that epitomises everything you're trying to do. So Meriden, almost your move to Chelsea at that time as well, you... You rightly mentioned probably back in that time there was a, a real link with Chelsea and the National Front but you mentioned the name there and, and, and Ken Bates does that sort of you know emulate that it's people who can cause change and, and people make change it's, it's not policy it's the people so him coming Correct. in him coming in he was brought Chelsea that next step forward
1: Correct. He, Ken was brilliant I mean he he got a lot of grief for supporting black players he used to get yeah. bullets in the post and a lot of things and 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 he told me, he said to me, Paul, I want you to be my captain, be my first black captain, you know. And and you made a point there before, I mean, and this is what I try and say to people when I'm talking on a wider political level. It's not policy that makes frame or the framework of policy. It's people and people doing the right thing. And Ken Bates has done, you know, he might have upset a few other people. I don't doubt it, you know, with, with, with Bates, I call him, you know, Uncle Ken. But you know what he has been unbelievably loyal and magnificent towards me and and the opportunities and the support that he's given me has been immense so i you know he is living now in monaco and you know enjoying his life and you know he it's people like that and that's why it's those people with the power that use the power you know that's so important people using power not for self use the power to make change you know and bring people on the journey and make a difference and make people's lives better, more equitable, and provide better opportunities in the workplace and opportunities for people, you know, through sport. So, you know, that's why the work that I do now, my relationships, I make change through my relationships with people. You know, people that's got that empathy, people that you know you can take on that journey, and people that trust you, you know, um, because they know with me... I'll always do the right thing for football. I, you know, I call myself a change agent. You know, I'm a change agent, an agent of change. That's what I do because it's the right thing to do. And and but there's a lot of good people out there that's also doing some brilliant work, and I co partner with them on on my journey. So it's great. You
3: know, it is all about changing, as you say. So. Thirty years ago, if it, if it be you, or if it be Mark Walters, you're singling out because it's it's the one black man on the pitch, you know. And I'll oh, yeah. use my own experience here. I, I I watch Celtic, I watch down south, I watch any football game, and I would never, and it would never even occur to me, bat an eyelid to to, to even think if it, if it's a black player, if it's a white player, because to they me work. it's it's all just it's just the same. So as you say, it's that that changes came in on the pitch, and, and that is fantastic because. It's, it's not viewed any differently but what is the issue in, in the boardrooms you know and in senior management how do we yeah. get that diversity there what's what's going wrong
1: that's been the biggest single challenge because obviously uh, and I should also say in Scotland people like Fraser Wishart has been doing a brilliant yeah. job Tony Higgins I, I only spoke with them last week we're talking about the challenges well, and giving them support so that's you know my I call my Scottish brethren my Scottish partners so they're great guys you know and JP so um that 's the you know the big taboo now, because I think the the the, pro- the problem is and this is football it 's built built on those old networks you know, and part of my job is to sort of say to those you know 'm sort of like you know you have to change you know because this you know there 's evidence there 's data out there you 've got to modernize your organizations, football clubs are global brands, and then there 's the economic imperative in my political argument, I actually say. When the Premier League started in 1992, the TV rights was worth 192 million for the domestic rights, 40 million for the international rights. Fast forward 30 years, the domestic rights is worth close to 5 billion, and the international rights are worth 3 billion. So the last cycle was worth, 3 billion, was worth £8 billion. Pounds. And the reason is because, you know, in the Premier League now, you've got 61% of the players are foreign. And the Premier League is shown that in 188 countries worldwide. So it's, so the Premier League, its whole business model, Amy, is built on one thing, diversity. So when I say to people, that's the economic upside of having a diverse and inclusive work field on the field of play. Don't you think then your board, you know, so your, your chairman or your vice chairman or your senior executive your commercial manager, you know, shouldn't you be having that same principles of that diversity on the field? Because look at your audience. Your audience is no longer you you know the sixty million people in the UK or the X amount of people in Scotland. It's global. You know, it's over Asia, Africa, you know, North and Central America, China, you know, so you so you must understand there's the economic imperative of a diverse and inclusive workforce, as well as the social imperative, as well, to do the right thing. Because diversity is good. Diversity of thinking is very, very important. Because you can't have all Paul Elliot's on the board, but you can't have also all Amy's on the board. Yeah. You can have a bit of Amy, a bit of Paul Elliot, a bit of somebody else to so have diverse thinking. And that's how you learn. You know, you learn when you talk to people from. Diverse backgrounds, different cultures, think differently, do differently. How do you empower and engage and mobilize so that you become a more worldly, a, a more effective, efficient individual? And boards are more effective and efficient because of the diversity of the personnel. They bring difference, you know, and I've seen it at the FA board, you know, where it's more effective and efficient. Better decision makers, you know, corporate governance, more you know, transparency, more fairness, more openness, because of the diversity of the board. That's what it brings. And so you've got the social narrative, and you've got the human narrative, and you've got the business narrative. And that's where, you know, through my work with the FA, I've created this diversity code, the leadership diversity code where all the clubs have signed up to the code. So they're going to have targets, targets in the boardroom, targets in middle management, targets for senior leadership positions, targets for women in boards, women doing coaching, you know, minority ethnic groups, you know, more transparency on the recruitment, more diverse panels. So, so it's not about talking anymore. It's about putting a framework in place, you know, because the knee, the Black Lives Matter, the knee, I think it's so important. I mean, because the modern-day players—it's a sign, of, it's a—it's a symbol to them. It's a sign of unity. It's their sign of engagement. It's they have a, a correlation and a relationship with that model. But now, that still should continue. But then, you have to have a cogent, coherent—you know—structure within the organisation that holds football clubs to account. That's the action. This is the lobby, the visibility, the empowerment, but this is the action plan that holds football to account and football's got to evolve and grow and be far more diverse.
3: Thinking back to obviously the incident that happened in um, the the Charlton dressing room with, with a teammate mm. and then you fast forward thirty years now as you see you're seeing players and, and not just black players, white players standing with their black players Absolutely. or kneeling with their black players. Yeah. Mm. what does that mean to you as a as a black man, as a well, former black footballer, seeing that, seeing that connection, seeing that unity.
1: You know what I mean so in my opinion. That's arguably the most potent, powerful message because in my dressing room, in my world, I was alone. Yeah. People didn't know how to cope with it. They didn't understand this it's big. They just think, because, Paul, you're, you're six foot two, built like a middleweight boxer, you know, you're all right big man. you know. But I have a heart. I have yeah. thoughts. I have feelings like everybody else. I have weaknesses. I have strengths. So I'm no different, you know, because of my, my physicality or my leadership or, you know. So... In my opinion, you know, when I see down in the UK what i done, when I created a structure, I had, like, my, my football board, I had a coaches board, football board, administrators board, you know, female coaches, diverse coaches. On my football board, you know, to contribute into the code was Jordan Henderson, Harry Kane, Tyrone Mins, Wes Morgan, Lucy Bronze, best woman player in the world, um, Leah Williamson, the key to Paris. So that captured that diversity. So I'm imagine, you know, those black players now, you've got Jordan Henderson, Harry Kane, England captain, Tottenham captain, Liverpool captain, England vice captain alongside you saying, this is wrong. We are standing shoulder to shoulder. We are standing with the utmost solidarity and respect alongside our brothers, our footballers. Amy, that for me is the most powerful medium for change that the black players now, not just white players, they've got everybody, international players, women, that same diversity on the pitch, they're all standing shoulder to shoulder in the fight and show a sign of unity and, and solidarity. That's the most powerful movement, because that's, that, that's visible then, isn't it? That Absolutely. visibility.
3: You know, Paul Elliott can't be in his role forever as much as we'd like him to be and I'm, I'm not saying anytime soon that he's, he's disappearing but how much hope does that set for you for the future? You know, you mentioned Tyrone Mingser, the great work he's oh. doing t- Troy Deeney, uh, Marcus right. Rashford but crucially, as you say, it's, it's your white counterparts it's, it's Harry Kane, it's your Jordan Henderson's moving forwards how much hope do you have that, you know, we've came a long way in 30 years but by no means is this over?
1: No, I mean, it's funny because I was listening to a former player and it was interesting. I mean, he was said, until you change society with racism, you're never going to change football. Yeah. I, I would reverse it back. I would say if there's 7 billion people in the world and within that 7 billion people, 4.5 billion people are watching the Premier League and the EFL is the fifth most watched league in the world, if you can change football and the Premier League's in 188 countries worldwide, wouldn't you say there's a consideration if you can use the power of football to make the change, given the impact and the prominence and the eminence and the visibility of football and what it means to the world, you're going to have a better chance to say, change society more than changing society first and thereafter as a byproduct, of changing football? That's my analogy. That's my rationale. I think and that's where football is not responsible for all of societal zeals. And that, but, you know, football's got a massive role to play. And that's why clubs like Celtic Rangers, they're doing some brilliant work in the roots of the community. Aberdeen, Hearts, Dundee, all relative to their local communities. They do some brilliant work, and that's using the power of football to activate and mobilise and change and, and and evolve the communities. So I think that's, that's the way you do it. You can get football, right? You're always going to have people, as you've correctly... You know, the biggest challenge now is the social media, you know, with all the all the criticisms towards black players, women... But the government are on that, you know. They're, they're, we're doing a lot of work down here. And that was one of the conversations I was having with, with the guys, you know, in Scotland about, you know, our joint collaboration. Because that's what we do, share knowledge, share ideas, share best practice. So for me, it's an easier fix to fix football than what it is to fix society. Fix Absolutely. football, and then the domino effect is you can really impact society. So yeah. I'm an optimist. <laughs>
3: no, no, not at all, and uh, well, rightly so. You know we're we're coming up up towards the Euros. Um, obviously, they, they're coming th- to the UK. Um, in comparison, obviously, to, to like we say, to even to Italy, how proud are you to to see, like you say, these these figures? Your your Tyrone Mings and your your Jordan Hendersons, they have put this country and football in, in such great stead. So no matter what. What the Euros brings, well, no matter what you know, challenges could could be thrown and face with us. We're sitting in good stead, aren't we?
1: Yes, and also I say that for England, but also I also have to say to you, I've got to pay tribute to Scotland as well. Absolutely, Steve Clark is a great mate of mine. We played together at Chelsea. The work that he has done as an individual, putting his head above the parapet, setting the example, took a lot of stick. as you know, because when you do brave and big things, he's a principled man, Steve, quiet, unassuming. Top guy, very principled. So I think it's great, that solidarity there. And you look at, to answer your question, what the guys are doing down south. And that's been exemplified by Gareth Southgate, great man, great manager, like Steve Clark. So we've got that, you know, we've got that new generation of player, but we've got the same with the next generation of managers as well. And I think it would be fantastic. And to have, you know, we've got seven games, you know, down in uh, at Wembley, which will be great. And obviously I'm hopeful to be there to, to watch Scotland against England. That would be just fantastic. Um, So I'm, uh, you know, I I think having had the experiences I've had, the journey that I've lived, you can go through in my world you can say, am I really going to bury my head in half empty or am I going to do it in the half full end? And my life, my leadership, my attitude to change, my attitude to bringing people with me, you know, is always about the half full end. Take people on the journey because it's easy to say what's wrong, but isn't it even better to say what's right and this is how we fixed it?
3: Absolutely, Paul. I, I cannot thank you enough. This has been a, an absolute honour to, to talk to you for, for over an hour, and I, I could speak to you for so many more. Um, <laughs> I've, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and um, I know I speak on behalf of many, many Celtic fans that um, you know you are just you are so loved up here. You, you really are, and um, I, I just I thank you so much for joining yeah, me.
1: Yeah, I'm honoured. That's why you know I'm happy to give up my time to great people like you, your country, because you want to, you know, I have to, you're one of my disciples now, you know, you have to lobby, you know, you're fighting the cause for women as well, for the issues around, you know, a, a, a gender discrimination, because it's about all forms of discrimination. We just have to speak about ethnicity, but it's also about your gender, about your disability, about your sexuality. So it's all about all those things where people just want to live, you know, to, to capture where we're coming from. I always say, You know, regardless of, you know, race, colour, creed, religion, gender, disability, sexuality, age, equality of opportunity is a fundamental God-given right. It's no privilege. So that's the best way to end. Thank you to all your listeners. You know, everybody keep working together because, you know, another line I always say, you know, alone we do so little, together everyone achieves more. T E A M, Scotland now have got a team on the pitch now (laughs)
3: uh,
1: you know England's got a team on the pitch now you know we have to build the same positive team with the same types of people to make change within the structures of football and the rub-on effect in society and community so thank you all and thank you to everybody
3: Paul Elliott thank you for joining me on Soccer Supernova
0: And it's powering fast starts for athletes in every arena like NBA All-Star Zion Williamson, WNBA champ Kalia Copper, and MLB superstar Francisco Lindor. With 200 milligrams of caffeine, electrolytes, and zero sugar, Fast Twitch is the new go-to for on-the-go energy anytime you need to turn up the intensity. Available in six refreshing Gatorade-inspired flavors, grab Fast Twitch in the energy drink aisle at a store near you. Sports Social Podcast Network.